Thank you for checking out the Faith City Church Podcast. We believe that you'll be blessed by today's message. So I want to get started today uh, really in a message that I didn't intend for it to be a series. Uh, we talked last week and we asked this question, can you trust God? Can you trust God? And, uh, oh, before I go there, let me say this real quick, too. I wanted to give you guys an update. Uh, first of all, Al Trevino, he's continuing to heal. Things are looking better. They're looking up. Um, our, our dear sister Vicky's had some good reports. Hallelujah, God's good in that arena. Uh, dear brother Chuck Siglo, anyone know Chuck Siglo? Uh, if you're not familiar with this, I don't know how much I should say or not, but he's church family, right? Um, he had a liver transplant, like, on the fly. Last, last Sunday, got a call, said, we have a match. And so between now and then, full liver transplant. And normally, they have to put people on a vent and in a, a sedate, heavy sedation um, in order for this to take. They never had to with him. It immediately began to take. The liver did. So we're so pumped with that. In fact, I was talking to his son, uh, John Jonathan, today. And he had mentioned he's going to visit. But they're already talking about releasing him from the hospital. That was a week ago. That's just like, come on, somebody. Isn't that beautiful? And so it's, it's stuff like that that, you know, just, I don't know, just rocks my world. It gives me that little, like, oomph, like, man, God is so good, right? Um, and also, I don't know if you're familiar with our dear uh, sister Kathy. Um, she actually started coming a couple years ago. Uh, tall Kathy, just sweet, sweet lady. And when COVID hit, of course, she stopped coming. She is a little bit older, um, but she has been attending online. I mean, she's so faithful. She sends like offerings in the mail, just like she believes so much in this. The cool thing is she's my next door neighbor. And so, you know, we've been there about 10 years, and I don't think she knew about us at first, but we actually became really good friends, and she found out we were pastors, and uh, eventually just came to the church and loved it. She's like, man, just being set free by this message of how good, how good God is, how much he loves me, how sufficient his grace is, and just came out of some legalism and some things, and just, you know, loving life and all that. Well, she passed away this last week. Just kind of nothing we expected. Um, we just saw... We just saw lights outside and went, uh-oh, what's going on? And sure enough, talked to her daughter. So um, her funeral is actually uh, going to be this Tuesday. Um, I need to make sure I get this information right because I've been talking back and forth uh, to her, her daughter about this. Um, but it's going to be, let me get this here. If you want to attend this Tuesday, it's going to be at Swartz Funeral Home. See, Swartz Funeral Home in Grand Blanc. There's going to be visitation at 11 a.m. and service at noon. And, uh, you know, I had already planned on being there. She's just such a dear sister. So she's like part of the family, man. I mean, Ethan would uh, shovel her driveway, you know, in the, in the winters for her. And she would insist that he would take money. And he's like, I don't need that. She's like, no, you take this. And, you know, we would grab her garbage cans and bring it up, that type of stuff. So we really miss her. You know, it's, it's just so wild to not see her getting in her car and, you know, boogieing out, out the door, going somewhere, and it's just kind of wild. But the beautiful thing is she actually, uh, the daughter asked if I want to participate in some of the funerals. So I'm going to talk with uh, Pastor Josh Combs today about that. But if you guys want to come out and join us, again, that Swartz Funeral Home in Grand Blanc, uh, 11 a.m. visitation, and uh, noon is the funeral service. So appreciate that. Well, anyway, let's get back into this. So last week we asked this question, can you trust God? Say that with me. Can you trust God? Now make it personal. Can I trust God? Say that with me. Can I trust God? And so we, we talked about, we asked this question and we talked about this, but I want to ask this question again in a slightly different way. Let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. And it's interesting how I began to just kind of, I was in prayer about what to talk about today and this, this reference came up to me, and I thought it was interesting because last week we actually talked about the Apostle Peter, but it was pre him following Jesus. It was when he first met Jesus, and Jesus had used his boat to preach out of. And remember, he, after all this, they had been toiling all night to catch fish. They didn't catch any fish. And Jesus, who's a rabbi, not a fisherman by trade, says to this fisherman who's been doing it for generations, he says, hey, uh, why don't you go back out and cast your net on the right side? he's like, well, obviously, last night, everything was the wrong side, right? 
And so he does. And he, he did it out of obedience because he was a fisherman and knew they toiled all night, all night and didn't get anything. So he went ahead and did it, and he caught this, this net-breaking boatload of fish and just could not believe it, right? And so what did he do? He let down his net. But then Jesus said, follow me, and he laid down his net. And so we talked about this idea. But here we are in 1 Peter. This is a letter by the Apostle Peter. And I want us to think about this in context. How many know context is important? And so we see Peter, the Apostle, writing this letter. This is decades after that first encounter with Jesus. Walked with Jesus for three, three and a half years of ministry. Uh, what's interesting to me, I was just talking to a dear sister last week about this, but, you know, G- Peter's the one who denied Christ three times at the crucifixion. You remember this? In fact, this is the third time that he de- denied with cursing and swearing, like, man, gosh darn it, y'all. Right, I'm wearing church, so we'll say it nice. Gosh darn it all. You know, I don't know this Jesus. I don't know who he is. And he denied him three times. And to me, this is really the beauty of Jesus and the beauty of the gospel is the last encounter that Peter has with Jesus while he was still on earth was on a beach eating a meal together. And Jesus asks him three times, Peter, do you love me? And every time Peter's like, yes, Lord, you know I do. He said, then feed my sheep, feed my lambs. In other words, it doesn't matter what you did, Peter. I know you denied me three times. But I'm going to ask you this question three times to counteract that so you can see this. You still have purpose in your life. I've called you with purpose in your life. I think many of us even need to just hear that today, that no matter what we've done or if we haven't followed through in obedience, you know what? Then let's just change. It's okay to say, sorry, Lord, I wasn't obedient in that, and then continue to progress in your journey. Don't give up on it. Right? His calling is without uh, repentance. I mean, you are called. You have purpose in life. Someone needs to hear this today. Whether you're here or you're online, you have purpose. Don't give up on this. But I want us to get some perspective that this is the Peter who decades later has followed Jesus, right? both earthly ministry and then spiritually followed Jesus, beginning to learn and understand You know, all they had was the Torah, you know, the law and the prophets and the psalm and the Proverbs and all these things, to know that there wasn't some New Testament Bible. In fact, I don't even think they were aware that as they were writing these letters that they would be canonized into a New Testament or a Bible, which we have here, right, which is great. So he writes these words starting in verse 5 of 1 Peter chapter 5. He says, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. So he's learned some things. And so he's saying, I want to I want to share this with you before I go, before ministry is over, because I want you to understand that I've learned a lot on this journey and I'm trying to help you. But look what he says here. He says, "Yes, all of you, say all of you." That includes all of us. He says, "All of you be submissive to who? One another." Now, You could just read over this and go, yes, sounds great, Jesus. But he's saying to be submissive to one another. But the next line, really, it really just sparked something in my heart when I read this. Look what he says. And be clothed with humility. Clothed with humility. Say that with me. Clothed with humility. Now, let me ask you this. When you got up this morning, some of you even at home, I'm sure you've got something on. When you... We're getting ready for church today. Before you left, did you clothe yourself in something? Yes or no? Anyone? I'm looking around. It looks like you did. I'm glad you did. Praise the Lord. It's, it's not as awkward for us when you're clothed. But the way he states this is really powerful to me. Because in, you know, in reality here, in, in the real life world, before we step outside the door into a public space, what do we do? We clothe ourselves. But what Peter's saying here is he says, put on your clothes. That's great. It could be awkward. You might end up in jail for a night. Let's put some clothes on. But not only do you put your clothes on, before you walk out the door, clothe yourself with humility. Literally put on humility. And how many know this? Has anyone ever got like a a new pair of boots or a new shirt or something? When you put it on, you kind of want to display. You're like, I hope they notice. 
I hope they notice I got something new here. Hope they notice I, you know, did my hair and, and those types of things, guys, right? But in those moments, you want people to see what you are displaying. But Peter's saying, above all, clothe yourself with humility. Let people see that you're humble. This is powerful. This is kingdom. But why does he say this? Look what he says next. He says, for God resists the proud. Now, where did Peter get this idea? Well, honestly, he got it from the Old Testament. His Torah, the Proverbs, the Psalms, and Proverbs 3.34, it says that God resists the proud. He was a Jewish boy. He understood the scriptures. He knew the scriptures. Maybe he couldn't read. Well, I'm not sure. I don't know if he could read or not. I mean, obviously, he was writing, but a lot of times they would you know, dictate and someone would write for them, a scribe that they would hire to do this. These letters weren't someone in a corner with a candle at night writing. This was months of preparation because it costs a lot of money just to put things in the print. That's another story for another time. But let me just say, it wasn't just, I'm going to sit down, get my iPhone out, and send an email real quick. That's not how it worked. This was a major deal. But see, he knew the old covenant. He knew that God resists the proud. But what's it going to say? It gives grace to the humble. How would he know this? Because the prophet Isaiah says this in Isaiah 57, 15, that God gives grace to the humble. So, To me, he's quoting what he knows, but he's on this journey seeing everything through this new lens of the new covenant and this new lens of Jesus. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Then he goes on to say, therefore, say therefore. My dad used to say, if there's a therefore, you want to find out what it's there for. Old word of faith joke, I get it. Therefore, it says, humble yourselves under what? The mighty hand of God, and he... Look at this, that he may exalt you in due time. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. And look at this, I I bring this scripture out at least half a dozen times a year. Casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Now, I love that scripture. I I quote that to myself. I've preached out of that, that it's important to, to cast. You know, that word cast literally means in the Greek to hurl. Like, it's intentional. It's with everything you have. Sometimes that's what it takes to get rid of that, that fear, that anxiety, that, that worry, that care that you have to do that. But in context, it begins by humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God. So today I want to talk about this idea of humility. Say Humility. I know I get you to say a lot of stuff, but it's so we can remember, right? Humility is important. What does it look like to walk out humility? What does it mean to be humble as far as Jesus is concerned or as the scriptures are concerned? After all, this displays kingdom life. He said to clothe yourselves with humility. It's something we put on. Every day before you walk out the door, you need to say, Lord, I'm going to clothe myself with humility. Allow me to be humble today. You know what this is going to do? It's going to change the way you think. It's going to change the way that you see others. Now I say this because I've participated in this humility thing a couple times. Doesn't mean every single day. There's plenty of days I go out, I have my own agenda, I'm living selfishly, I don't want to forgive people, I don't want to let people off the hook, I don't want to be humble. I get that. Come on, am I the only one? But I think it's important here to realize that this is how we display the kingdom life. We are clothed with humility. So let's talk about this idea. In God we trust. And more specifically, I love this phrase, under the influence. Has anyone ever heard this phrase before, under the influence? Normally it's something that we hear if someone's a drug addict or they, you know, alcohol, but let's be honest, we're all influenced by something. Look at verse six again. It says, therefore, humble yourselves. What does it say again? Under the mighty hand of God. Now this word hand in the Greek, I want us to to clarify something so we can understand. It means by the help or agency of anyone or by the means of anyone, because You know, sometimes I've thought, okay, well, if I'm literally supposed to humble myself under the mighty hand of God, it can almost come off like his hand is a heavy hand. I don't know about you, but I know plenty of people who have been raised in very heavy-handed homes. Let me just say this. As a parent, it's, it's, it's tough to find out where those lines are. 
I mean, you have, man, especially you have more than one kid. Discipline isn't the same for every single kid. They have different personalities. They, they fall different on the Enneagram. There's just d- different ways that they process and handle and do life. And as a parent, it's not easy. If it's easy, I would dare say you're not doing it right. Because easy for, for me would be um, do whatever you want. This is too exhausting. <laughs> because it's not easy. Can I get one amen for any parents here this morning? It's not easy. But what I, what I don't see here is this isn't like some heavy legalistic hand. I mean, some have grown up in a household. It was so heavy. The thumb was pressed down so hard that you just wanted to break out at 19, 18, 17, 20 and just get out of there because it was too hard. I don't believe that that's how God is. I've said it before that discipline, proper discipline, according to the pattern God has shown, is not punishment for your past. What is it? Anyone remember? It's training for your future. God is always looking to train you for your future, to train you out of things that are bad for you, that are hurting you. But sometimes I've caught myself punishing my kids because I was embarrassed or just exhausted or tired or whatever it is. But those moments doesn't mean that it might not be a hard moment. Doesn't mean that you might not have to be uh, very, what's the word I'm looking for? Intentional in that moment with your children, right? But the whole point is I love you so much that I want to train you out of some things that are hurting you because you have a future. And I see that future. And that future is good. And I believe in you. Right? That's how God is with us. He doesn't give up on us. He promised to never leave, to never forsake us. I trust that promise. How about you? On my worst day, I can know you you haven't gone anywhere. We talked about it last week. You might have those, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me moments, just like Jesus on the cross. But we see that Jesus was actually quoting Psalm 22. And in that Psalm, he felt that way. It's like the prophecy of what was happening to him at that moment. But by the end, it says, you never hid your face from me. God never went anywhere. He was there with Jesus the whole time, just like he's there with you the whole time, no matter what you go through. And so I want us to see that this isn't some heavy hand. Look at this. It's by the help or agency of anyone, by means of anyone. In other words, he's saying, will you humble yourself and allow God to help you under the mighty hand of God? As I started to think about this idea of being under the hand of God, this phrase kept coming up in my mind, under the influence. Under the influence. Are we choosing to be under the influence. Here's the question. Whose hand have you put yourself under? More specifically, who are you under the influence of? I know that's not grammatically correct, but just go with me. Dangling participle, any English teachers, I get it. But who are you under the influence of? Now, you might say, okay, pastor, that's, that's great. I mean, how many know that we all have influences in our life? Let's just be honest. We, we all have something or someone that influences us, that we put ourselves under. But you might think, okay, Pastor, that's great, but what does it have to do with the idea of in God we trust? I mean, this message is about trusting God. What does trust have to do with humility? Well, let's think about that for a minute. Because it takes trust to put yourself under the influence of another. I mean, there has to be relationship. There has to be something about that person or thing. Now, sometimes it can become something that's not a good thing. It could become an addiction, a go-to. Come on, I'm just being honest. And so you're under the influence of something that's not helping you. But I literally feel like Peter's saying, listen, the best thing you can do right now is humble yourself under the hand of or under the influence. Put yourself under the influence, this hand that's going to help you and guide you through life. But the writer also says this, and I love this. It says that he may exalt you in due time. This word exalt is so cool in the Greek. It means to raise to dignity, honor, and happiness. Think about this. He wants to raise you to dignity, honor, and happiness. In due time, it means the right time. If you want to be real technical, it means the decisive epoch waiting waited for so something that you anticipate you're waiting for see i believe that that god has made us 
It was very intentional when he made you with your personality and your gifting and your calling. And there's something deep inside us. There's things that resonate with us. And there's things, I believe they resonate right when we know that, man, this is where I'm supposed to be. Has anyone ever felt that way? Like, man, I feel like I'm in the right place at the right time. But look at this. He wants to raise to dignity, honor, and happiness at the right time. The decisive epic waited for. Now think about this. We're all looking for dignity, for honor, for happiness. Now I know some would say, well, happiness is just based on what's happening. You know, the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy. Joy is something you can have even if everything happening isn't perfect. But how many love feeling happy? I mean, it's nice. Don't worry, be happy. Yeah, that's great. Great song, buddy, but I want to worry right now. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you prefer happiness over worry? Anyone here? Of course. And so it's important here that we see that we all want dignity. We all want honor and happiness. But Peter's telling us that the way to this dignity, honor, and happiness, and the perfect timing of it all, it lining up perfectly, it comes when trusting God enough that we humble ourselves under his hand. That we say, God, I want you to be the one that influences my life. Now, I'm, if the prerequisite for being a pastor was perfection, there wouldn't be any pastors. There just wouldn't. I mean, we don't do things perfectly and right all the time. Now, on the journey, hopefully there's some progression. We call it maturity, right? So we mature in those things. But the problem is sometimes we still submit ourselves under the influence of other things or other people, believing that this thing or this person will bring me true dignity, honor, and happiness. And Peter is saying, there's only one person. We know God's spirit, but go with me. There's only one person that we should put ourselves under the influence of. And it's the hand of God. Not only that, humble yourselves. See, true humility allows us to actually say, okay, I accept what you have for me. I accept your influence. I accept what you have to offer. I accept your help. Right? When you think about this in the life of Christ, I mean, we, we talk about stories just about every Sunday, different things that Jesus has said and done. You know, his biggest opposition was religion. I mean, if you, Jesus was very sympathetic, empathetic, accepting of all. His table was open to everyone. Just ask the religious people, like, why is he eating with tax collectors and sinners? Right? The only time that I would see Jesus, at least in, in my summation, from what I've read in the canon and even read some stuff outside of the canon, some different gospels, I see this, this Jesus who he only gets riled up when it comes to religion, when it comes to people imposing things on others and making them feel less than or making them into rejects or outcasts. This really seems to bother Jesus. You see, back then, just like today, People would put their trust in, or we could say put themselves under the influence of man-made religion. It's the same as today. And so you had this, this, this whole idea. And so you, as you follow the life of Jesus, whether he was telling parables or stories about you know, specks and logs in people's eyes, about divided kingdoms or lost sheep or lost sons, like in the prodigal story. How many are familiar with that? I love that story. One of my favorite. We usually break that down at least once a year. But he's essentially dealing with religion, or we could say religious attitudes. We could actually break it down to one word, pride. That's what it was. R religious attitudes, um, holding others at bay, feeling like you're better than someone else, it's just pride. Let's be honest about it. And the antidote, if you will, to pride is always humility. That's why Peter... He finally learned. He's like, okay, of all the things I learned out of three to three and a half years of following Jesus and then following him for the rest of my life, proclaiming the gospel, I've learned this, that we need to humble ourselves. I don't believe Peter was saying this, telling them what to do, but he wasn't doing it himself. We can even see in his life. This is, this is beautiful. And this is something else I was talking about with someone last week is a lot of times we'll, we'll, read, we'll read one portion of a letter that an apostle had written and we hold them to that. 
But if you actually read stuff, and you can do this, you could just you could Google this and, and, and find the years that things were written. And if you put it in chronological order and you begin to read, you're going to see a process of growth and maturity. In fact, sometimes they'll say something a little differently, or you can go, wait a minute, did they change their theology a little bit? Well, of course, who doesn't? I mean, are we on a journey? Listen, if, if, if you believe the exact same, and I'm not talking about the tenets of faith, the foundational things, but if your theology hasn't moved a little bit in 10 years, that's called stagnation. And I know it's tough sometimes because if you're in certain denominations or especially if you go to seminary or Bible school and it's just in, it's one specific domination, domination? Wow, that was Freudian slip. Denomination. (laughs) Holy Spirit's funny. But if you're in one specific denomination or box or religious, you know, cookie cutter thing, you're literally told at times only read these or listen to these people who believe the same as us don't go outside the box and they get afraid do you know how much freedom has transpired in my life when i said i'm going to go outside the box and see what else is out there ask questions try to understand what's going on no there's times where i've i've ventured out and went whoa i don't think i'm ready for that and holy spirit's like you're not right i mean we have to trust Holy Spirit's big enough in our life to direct us. That's part of the problem sometimes with the, the westernized idea of church. It's one dude up at, behind a table or a pulpit telling you what to do, and you just take a hook, line, and sinker. I mean, when I speak, take notes, go home and say, is he really, does he really know what he's talking about? I don't get offended at that, and let's have a conversation about it. I love that. Change my mind if you see something different. That's how we grow. Do you know that's how the early church did it? They met house to house. They didn't have New Testaments. I say this all the time. They would discuss Torah and then the way of Jesus and how did this line up? How did that? How does this work in this new kingdom, this new covenant? How does this work? Jesus said to his apostles, I give you the authority to bind and to loose. How many are familiar with this? And then some denominations took it into, it was like this prayer warrior thing that you do. But this was literally a Jewish term. Binding and loosing was reading scripture and then interpreting. What does this truly mean? So Jesus was literally saying, guys, I give you the authority to read Torah, to Old Covenant, to transfer over what, what's filtered through me, the lens of me, keep those things. But there's other things that you're probably going to go, wow, that, that wasn't really truly the way God wanted it. It's how men saw it at the time. But now we're progressing to a new way of life. And this is what really bothered people. This is why the writer of Hebrews wrote Hebrews, because people... In the Jewish faith, we're very uncomfortable giving up. Think about this. If you're in a family and all you know is Judaism and going to this big, beautiful temple that costs millions of dollars in today's you know, funds, and it was beautiful and it just had something to it in the ceremony and the culture, and then you're like, well, I'm going to go over to this little house church that follows this man who was crucified and they say was, was raised from the dead and resurrected. The family's like, what are you doing that for? We have our way. Does this make sense? And so it said that people would go back to offering sacrifices. And the writer says that's trampling what Jesus has done under your feet. See, context matters, doesn't it? So he gave the apostles the authority to bind and to loose, to interpret scripture. And sometimes maybe the interpretation would change through the lens of Jesus, the new covenant and the new life. Isn't that awesome? So the antidote to pride is always humility. And again, something that I've noticed here is is even though Jesus was always dealing with this religious attitude, when you hear the parables or the stories that Jesus told and his communication, let's be honest, altercations sometimes between Jesus and religious leaders, there's always this overarching theme It's about God and the kingdom. Jesus' main message and even the apostles' main message was this. Repent. Say repent. Now we've turned that into a bad word. 
right? If you, if you repent, ah, you put an A on the end of it, and it sounds real like, whoa, I better get to the altar, man. But the word repent means to change your mind. So think about this. Their message was, we're announcing, by the way, news is something you announce, something that's happened, right? It's called the good news. The good news in the Greek means almost too good to be true news because people were like, is it really that good? They were announcing something and they were saying, change your mind. The kingdom of God is at hand. In fact, the kingdom of God is within you. So awaken to this new way of life. It's the best way to live. Jesus was our example. So repent, change your mind. This isn't some dirty, like hard word. It's, hey, will you change your mind? The term born again, I've said this before, was a Jewish term. If someone came from, say, a Gentile, you know, idol worshiping, and, and they decided, I want, to follow, I want to follow this Yahweh, this God, they would come to the temple, and when they would say, you know what, I subscribe to this belief, I want to become born again, they would say, today you become born again. In other words, you've changed your mind. It's all about repentance. This is beautiful. And so we always see the overarching theme is about God and his kingdom. God is a central figure, and his kingdom is a central place, a place that we should be living out of daily. And in these stories, Jesus seems to constantly reveal to us the shocking truth about God. Reveal his love, revealing his grace, his goodness, despite our falling short. I mean, the good news really is the good news. But here's the thing. Religious attitudes will make us blind to the Father's goodness. I call them blind spots. You ever had an area in your life that you didn't really see what was happening and what was going on and the way you were acting or reacting to something, and then you had a good friend, because it usually takes good friends who can call you on the carpet about something, and they say, hey, I'm noticing this in your life. You're like, what? And at first, you know, you're like, I mean, most of us, some of you are like, wow, thank you so much for correcting me. This is wonderful. And then you just get better and move on. Well, that's usually not what happens. Usually I'm like, I'm irritated. I'm listening, but I'm irritated right now because you're messing. Because I didn't even see that I had that issue. See, this has helped me to deal with myself and others. Because I realize that we all have blind spots. We have things we just don't see. We don't know. How many know we have blind spots in, in, when you're driving? Right? And so it's always, if you don't, if you don't turn and look... If you're not intentional, you can end up in an accident. Someone could be right there and you just didn't even know it. That's what happens in our life sometimes. There's something right there and we didn't even know it. I call them blind spots. And religious attitudes, they give us these blind spots. And it makes us blind to the Father's goodness. It's a goodness, by the way, that's freely given. It's not something that you have to earn or deserve. It's freely given. It's a love that embraces both, we could say, sinful prodigals and blind religious do-gooders. This is the beauty of the table of Jesus is sometimes I know we give the religious community of his time a, a bad rap, but you know that they were invited too. In fact, there's many religious leaders who follow Jesus, who went, into, went against the grain of their Jewish faith. And, and I don't hate my Jewish brothers and sisters. It's what they know, but Jesus was trying to bring them into a new reality right? Into a new way of thinking, a new way of living life. And so in the story of the prodigal sons, and yes, I say sons plural because they both were lost. One was far away and one lived right at home, but guess what? They were both lost, weren't they? Uh, one of my favorite stories, my favorite parables, what do we see that overshadows everything in this story? We see God's love covering, and get this, without proof of repentance. The thing that really rocked my world, I've read this story so many times, and you're probably familiar with it, but there's a father, he has two sons. One son says, give me my inheritance, which by the way was like basically telling his dad to drop dead because how many know we don't receive inheritances unless someone dies? So he wanted it beforehand. And it's, it's odd because as Jesus is telling the story, I want you to understand in a Jewish mindset, they would have been like, whoa, who's this, where's this kid? Can we pick up rocks now and stone him? I mean, this is according to the law. He would be stoned. The father didn't do that. The father literally said, here you go. Okay, gave it to him. He took his inheritance. What did he do? He squandered it. He spent it all. We understand that. He ends up, you know, working for someone in a pig pen uh, just 
just if you're not familiar with this, the Jews didn't eat swine or pig. So this was the worst place you could ever be. So he's in a pig pen and he's sitting there. He's thinking, my gosh, even my father's servants aren't starving. And so he comes up with this whole rehearsed speech. Father, I've sinned before you in heaven. He's getting ready. He comes back. He approaches. He falls on his knees. He begins his rehearsed speech. And this is what blew my mind. The father cuts him off. He's like, I don't want to hear the sob story. I'm not looking for that. What's he do? He cuts him off and he says, put a robe on his back, put a ring on his finger, put sandals on his feet and kill the fatted calf. We's going to party. This was his response to a shameful, sinful son to cut him off. And basically, this is what really is wild to me is by placing that special robe, which was only reserved for honored guests on his back, if you understand culture, by placing a ring on his finger, which is basically like that day's visa card. You could just stamp that on anything and pay for anything. By putting sandals on his feet, you know what he was saying? Your status in the family has never changed. Now, religious people already are like, okay, no, wait, 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 wait. wait. He's got to do something to earn that. <laughs> but see, the parables of Jesus would always turn things upside down, would, would totally play with people's heads, would disorient because Jesus doesn't make sense. He told a story another time of um, someone hiring people to work for the day, and he hired some in the morning, some in the afternoon, and some at the last hour. And when he goes to pay them, he pays everyone the same amount of money. And get this, you know who he paid first? the people who worked just the final hour. So everyone who worked all day could see, wait a minute, why are they getting the same amount as me? I mean, Jesus was always playing with people's heads. I mean, this is just how he was, right? But look at this. We see God's love covering without proof of repentance. I mean, think about this. Even contrition or repayment aren't what gets you back in. It's his relentless love. That's what brings you in. It's the kindness of the Lord that draws us, that woos us, that brings us to repentance, to change our mind, to go, I've been viewing life completely wrong. There's a new life I can live. It's this kingdom life. And how's it start? Humility. Two quick points today I want to talk about. Number one, humility is the doorway to receiving. Say that with me. Humility is the doorway to receiving. See, humility has this way of removing blinders from our eyes. I believe that being humble, it actually allows us to open our hearts and receive what God has freely given. It allows us to get to this place where we can say, you know what? I will humble myself under your influence. I will humble myself under your hand, under your help, under your way of life. I'm not saying this is easy. I'm not saying that I do it every single day, every single time. But the more that I do, it does bring true happiness. It brings true fulfillment. I feel a dignity. I feel an honor when I'm operating out, out of who I truly am, not who someone else has told me I am, or even my misconception of who I am. And we see this principle of humility scattered all throughout the New Testament, including the letter of the Apostle James. Look at this, James. He was a Jew too. He understood scripture. Look what he says in James 4, 6. He says, God resists the proud. Look at this, but gives grace to the humble. Now, I used to read this portion of scripture and thought, okay, he resists the proud. And, you know, again, here we go with words, right? Words matter. But it's so important to see that this word resists in the original Greek is the word antitasso, and it means to range in battle against or to oppose oneself. God resists the proud. I've talked about this before, but I want us to understand something. It's not the Father resisting us. I want us to understand this. It's not God resisting you. You're proud, you're not good enough, you're unworthy, 
you're a dirty, filthy, rotten worm. I can't stand the sight of you. This isn't the message, at least not the message you're going to get at Faith City. I just don't see it that way. God loves you right where you are. But resisting, it's important because correction is important, right? Disciplining the right way is important. But according to this word, it's, it's not resisting us, but it's resisting the wrong attitude. Come on, parents. We do the same thing in our household. I mean, if my child is acting a fool, acting crazy, you know, not, not measuring up to what I, what I, who I know they are. Let me put it that way. Who I know they are, what do I do? I don't resist them and kick them out of the family. I resist the attitude. I resist the action. I say, this isn't how we do it in the Baransic household. This isn't how we do it in the Heist household or the Smith household or you know, whatever, whatever household it is, the Duff household. This isn't how we do it. Parents, you ever been there? You had those moments with your children? It's not easy, but you have to reiterate and you should. I love you. My love is unconditional. That's a big thing. You, you, you got to let them know you love them no matter how angry or upset you are. Maybe sometimes take a little break. I don't always. I have to apologize for the way I maybe say something because it's in the moment I'm emotional. But your children must know that you love them unconditionally and that their status in the family has not changed. This is how God deals with us. But we must resist. We must oppose that attitude, that way of thinking. God resists a prideful attitude. This isn't acceptable. We live differently in this household. It's the same way. Father's resisting religious attitudes of pride, of selfishness, of unforgiveness, of all about me. I'm number one. He resists that, but he gives grace to the humble. What does Peter say? Humble yourselves under the hand of God, the mighty hand of God, the helping hand of God, under the influence of God. And you can see in these stories that Jesus tells, in these altercations that he has, that really God is trying to share with Pharisees and religious people this truth, right? That, that this attitude is not helping you. It's making you feel like you're better than someone else. Or maybe you feel so unworthy, you're trying to find your worthiness by being better than someone else. Guess what? Eventually that falls apart underneath you. There's no real foundation in that. Even in the prodigal story, this is... There's so many little tidbits in this story. You could, you could teach for four weeks on it, couldn't you, Ed? I mean, it's a beautiful story. But one thing that I find kind of riveting is there's a cliffhanger at the end. Now, come on, you, you all, how, how, how many binge some Hulu or Netflix? Come on, in the last few days. But whenever you watch a show, how do they get you to come back? There's a cliffhanger. And every time I'm like, oh, man, I can't believe they did that. You can't? They do it every show. <laughs> they keep you coming back. Jesus literally leaves this story in a cliffhanger because even in the prodigal story, he leaves the story to where the elder brother, he doesn't enjoy the father's love. He doesn't enjoy the father's forgiveness. He doesn't enjoy the father's delight. He cuts the story off. The religious brother basically says no to his father, and that's the end of the story. It's just left there. You're like, what happened? I want to know what happened. One thing I noticed in that is I think many times it's easier for prodigal sons to see the grace of God because we know where we've been and where we came from and what we're going through. Whereas sometimes if you have that religious pride, a lack of humility, it's so easy to go, uh, where's my blessing? Don't I deserve this? But Jesus leaves the story hanging. We really don't know what happened. But, but through that example, I guess I can see that, man, maybe it's really hard sometimes when we have a religious, prideful attitude to even receive what God has freely given because humility is the doorway to receiving See, we see the grace of God in these stories in the life of Jesus. It's a grace that was there all along. It's not like you prayed a prayer one day and suddenly grace was there. Grace has always been there. You can see the grace of God in the old covenant dealing with people. It's, it's, it's beautiful. But then the apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10, he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, 
It's a gift of God, not a result of your works. Why? So that no one may boast. Here we go again. Here's this prideful, boastful attitude versus being humble. See, it's not that God hasn't provided. For God so loved the world, everyone, every single person, from every single time period, he loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Come on, we know, we know the scripture by heart, right? I mean, I think it was even in the stands at one of the games I watched. Maybe it was the Lions game. I went, there's John three sixteen again. Why isn't 17 with that? Because 17 is, gives you great context, right? He didn't send his son to condemn the world but to save the world. Oh, come on, that's beautiful. But look what he says. It's not a result of your works that no one may boast. Here's that pride thing again. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, which God prepared beforehand. He already had you in mind. He already knew the works. He already knew the the gifts. He already knew what he was giving you because you're needed. You're necessary to this world. It's prepared by him beforehand. Why? So we should walk in them. In other words, he's like, I expect this to happen. This is who they are. This is who I made them to be. Humility is the doorway to receiving. And number two, we're going to wrap up with this. Humility is the only way to receive his grace. It's really the only way to receive any of his goodness, any of the gifts of God. Let me say something. You know, sin, hamartia in the Greek, you've got to understand this, it's not just breaking God's law. It's acting as your own savior. The, the, literal, the literal word, the Greek meaning for hamartia is operating outside of your God-given identity. A lot of times I hear the word sin and I'm like, ooh, that's that little thing we plan and we do, you know, the, those, those sins. But sin itself, when you make those decisions, it starts with your thought life, right? Then can manifest in what you say and, of course, what you do. But anything you do that's considered sin is because you're operating outside of your God-given identity. You don't know who you are. The Apostle Paul uses this language. He uses orphan language. Orphans don't know who their family is. So awaken to righteousness. Awaken to your right standing, this relationship you have with God. Awaken to your sonship. Awaken to your daughtership. That's the gospel. But the thing is, whether we're breaking laws and setting our own course or we're keeping all the moral laws and being very, very good, in this prodigal story, Jesus is showing us that both got it wrong. It's not about your performance or your lack of performance. It's about who you are and who as you are. And get this, this is so cool. Heavenly Father cares about both. So this isn't, relig- this isn't bashing religious people. This is a heart cry to say you don't have to be religious. You don't have to follow a bunch of man-made religion just as well as it is to prodigals who are just in outright sin and not living according to their God-given identity. It's saying God cares for all of us. Because in the end, the gospel isn't about morality or immorality. It's that everyone is loved and called according to his purpose. See, we've made it into a moral or immoral thing. That's what Sunday mornings have become. And so preachers, including me in the past, we spend so much time you know, pointing to the sin in people rather than pointing to the sun in people. When you see your sonship, the sin will fall away. But as long as you're, I mean, think about this. I don't know anyone in history who has changed and had a heart change by someone telling, all, telling them all the things that are wrong with them. And so I think this is a great opportunity on a Sunday morning to tell all the things that are right with you. All the things that God sees in you because he created you. Does that make sense? So we have religion that sees the world as good people versus bad people, but Jesus is saying that only the humble will receive the grace that he's already freely given. We have to be humble to receive that. It doesn't mean you're being humble. It makes them go, okay, I'll give it to you now. It just means that you're open to receive it. I say this all the time that Jesus has done everything that he's ever needed to do. We have all things for life and godliness. It's already provided. It's already done. But see, with this humble attitude, we then can embrace, lay hold. The scriptural term is receive, but in the Greek, it literally means to take. To take what's already been given. I use this example all the time, and it's perfect because Christmas is coming up. But, man, I love it when, when we get the gifts out around the tree, like, okay, Ethan and Aiden and, and all the grandkids. I forget their names because there's so many. We get those gifts out, and what do we do? 
We're like, here's your gift. We offer a gift. How many know you have to offer a gift in order for it to be received? You know how disheartening it would be if my children just sat there and said, well, I don't, I don't want your gift. That would be tough. That's kind of that religious attitude. I don't need that. I'm doing good on my own. Or even worse, I don't deserve this. I'm, I'm not worthy of that. Um, it's a gift, which by definition is free. It's not based on what you do. If what I give you is based on what you do, that's called wages or rewards, right? Now, when you go to work all week and they pay you a paycheck, you probably aren't going, thank you so much for this gift of 60 hours that I gave you. Nope. You're like, where's my check? And if they miss something, you're going to let them know, right? Because you work for that. You, you earn this. I want what I earned. But see, the gift of God is given freely. That's what gifts are. That's by definition. It's given freely. But listen, you have to receive. You have to take the gift. You have to open it up. Rip it open. I mean, I love Christmas morning because the kids, I mean, there's no inhibition. They rip that thing open. They get into it. They start to enjoy it like as soon as possible. And maybe Heavenly Father saying, will you do that with the gifts that I've given you? Be excited. Okay, so you don't think you deserved it. Doesn't matter. I'm giving it to you anyway. Rip it open, get into it, enjoy it, play with it, whatever, right? There's all those, this terminology we can go through, but the gift is freely given, so take it. Remember, the humble receive his grace. It really does take humility, doesn't it, to receive gifts? Because I've been the other way, and my mother-in-law, she's helped me out so much in this, because, you know, she'd, mother-in-love, not mother-in-law, she's my mother-in-love, but she would offer or do things. I'm like, well, you don't have to do this. That was my way of saying, I don't feel worthy, maybe, or I don't want you to give this to me. And I just love her responses always. Um, what would I say? My mom say, oh, I didn't, I don't deserve this, or you don't have to do this. And she goes, I know I don't have to, I want to. That's what she tells me. And so I've had to learn to say, if somebody wants to do something for me, I should just let them do what they want to do. That's part of the blessing for them. So sometimes it takes humility to receive, to put down all those thoughts of unworthiness and say, I receive the gift. Number one, humility is the doorway to receiving. Number two, humility is the only way to receive his grace. Look at the person next to you and say, what are you under the influence of? Go ahead and stand with me. I'm going to read the scripture one more time. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Who here wants to experience true dignity, honor, and happiness? Come on, I'm going to raise both hands. I'm going to wave them around, do a foot, because I, I desire that. Peter reminds us that the best way to experience this and to experience it in the perfect timing, it comes when trusting God and humbling ourselves under his hand, under his influence. Amen. For more information about Faith City Church, please go to faithcity.tv. As always, we pray that you would grow in the knowledge and grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.